the church, necessary things. We pull tonight's subtext, subtitle from Acts 15. This is a statement that's going to come out of what is commonly by scholars referred to as the First Council at Jerusalem. The First Council at Jerusalem is called in Acts 15, middle of the book of Acts, in response to this new phenomenon of Gentiles receiving Jesus. I call it a phenomenon because they had not seen this before. Up until Acts 10, we don't have record that Gentiles were receiving Jesus. And once they begin to accept Christ by faith, the Jewish founders, for lack of a better term, of the church don't know what to do with these Gentiles because the Jewish tradition has all of this back here, what we call the Old Testament. They looked at it as the Torah, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Prophets. They had all of that to live by. They had plenty of codes. They had a lot of rules. They had a lot of laws. They believed that those laws made them special or that those laws were given to them because they were special. What does that mean for me if I'm special because I have a collection of stuff and then you get to come in without the collection of stuff? Does that mean I'm not as special? Does that mean you are as special as me? Where is my status? The early church was struggling with this idea. They didn't know what to do with it. Last week we preached or taught get out of town. In that message, it was really an attempt to show that the early church had to spread the gospel outward because persecution pushed them outside. They could not stay in Jerusalem. They had to go to Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. They weren't taking the gospel out of an impetus for evangelism at first. They were taking the gospel out because they were like cockroaches when the light came on. They had to go somewhere. And so the gospel isn't leaving in pure forms out leaving Acts 8 and 9. It's just running. They're running from Jerusalem. In fact, by Acts 11, they're running to Jews in other towns, which is fascinating because here they go on their mission, but their heart is still not to go give the gospel to everyone. We get this idea that the early church was out here giving the gospel to everyone. They were not. They were ignoring people in the street and looking for their Jewish brothers and sisters to tell them our Messiah came. It is a massive revelation in the book of Acts that they are not to overlook people, that they are to stop Romans and Gauls and barbarians on the edge of the empire and strangers and introduce them to a Jesus they don't know anything about his religion. How do you do this? How do you take, it's one thing to take Jesus to your Jewish brethren and mention Moses and the Ten Commandments and David. And here's the son of David. Remember all those prophecies we grew up hearing about, the scriptures you know. I'm here to present to you that that man is here and his name was Jesus. And he resurrected. Now try that on people who don't know your Moses and don't know your Ten Commandments and don't know your Torah and don't care about your prophets and don't care about a son of David. And you're trying to introduce them to a resurrected Jesus. And when Paul tries that... In Athens, they laugh at him because they're like, this is silly. You're presenting to us your Messiah, and we're supposed to believe he raised from the dead. And so early on, the church is going to find a lot of difficulty. But So when Gentiles start, quote unquote, getting saved, a phrase I'm using that they didn't use, by the way, at least not in the way I'm using it. I'm using it because we're familiar with it. When Gentiles started getting saved, it was a miracle. It was a miracle. It was a miracle of intellect that this thing, that they would believe on this Jesus for whom they had no religious connection. They're not like their Jewish counterparts. They're just believing on this Jesus because they must have had a real experience with him. They must have truly met the resurrected Christ to say yes to him, especially when he's so diametrically opposite of what you're hearing from your, your own empire, what Rome is pitching to you, which is that Caesar is the son of God. 
and any sort of allegiance to anyone else as the Son of God is the only thing that gets you in trouble in the Roman Empire religiously. You can serve anything you want. Just don't act like there's someone else that's God. And here comes the Christians claiming Jesus is not only the Son of God, but He's resurrected Savior. How are Gentiles coming into this? So that first is the first miracle. That's almost an intellectual miracle. It's almost a revelatory miracle. The Jews now have to deal with them. What do we do with them? Because we know what religion is. We know about Moses and the Ten Commandments and Torah and blood sacrifice. We know all this stuff. What do these people need to do? And so the message goes out quickly. If you're a Gentile and you're an acceptor of Christ, you believe on Jesus, you need to become Jewish. You need, if you're a male, you need to go get circumcised. You need to join yourself to a synagogue. And you need to start to follow the law of Moses to the letter as if you are a Jewish man. And if you're a man, you then raise your house in Jewish rules, follow the feast days, observe the Sabbath, all of the things that a good Jew would do. And this is the message that comes in on the heels of salvation. Let me try to paint this correctly. Hey, here's Jesus. He died for you and he resurrected and you can have the life of God. Sign me up. By the way, now that you've signed up, you have to do this and this and this and this and this so that you're really in. Sound familiar? <laughs> we haven't changed our tactics much is my point. What happens is an act of faith, grace by faith, and then we come in with, but you got to do this. So this whole idea that come to Jesus, he loves you. Now that you're, you've come to Jesus, do this, 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 and this, and you're really saved. That's not a new phenomenon. I want to show you it's as old as the book of Acts. But it was birthed out of, and it's still, it's still in this, by the way. I, I truly believe this. People that do that truly believe that they're giving you a higher quality of salvation. They truly believe that you've accepted Jesus, but we're going to give you a high quality is live right. Do the right thing. Don't do the wrong thing. If you'll do that, then you're really saved. And I say the heart was in the right place. I was that guy. And what I meant by they're really saved is I thought those who had accepted Jesus out there in these other churches that didn't preach that kind of moralism or standards, they had a form of Christianity, but they didn't have the, the kind of Christianity Paul had or Jesus had, even though Jesus wasn't even a Christian. But that would have blown my mind that Jesus wasn't a Christian a long time ago. Um, and so I think their heart was in the right place. And I don't doubt that in this moment. But I want to show you that the council comes together and they're arguing over the Gentile question. Gentiles need to be circumcised. Gentiles need to follow the Mosaic law. And I got way too many scriptures, I know, to be going this long. So there might get some things cut tonight, but let's go with the flow. Uh, Gentiles need to be circumcised. Gentiles got to keep the law. The early church gets into an early fight. <laughs> And they begin to argue amongst themselves, what do we really want to tell these Gentiles? This is a formative moment because what we tell them is what they're going to do. They don't have any other, this is their, we're, we're starting a faith here. So we got to get this right. And so there's this massive battle that this starts to be this surge. And the apostles, namely what's often the, the, the you would consider the big three, Peter, James, John. And by James, I actually mean the brother of Jesus. Um, so James, the brother of Jesus, Peter, whom the early church looked at as the chiefest apostle, and then John, the beloved, who's going to end up authoring a chunk of the New Testament as well. And then on the outskirts is Paul, Barnabas and Paul, and that's going to shift as the book of Acts turns. Um, and I presented to you last week that I think the turn is not so much 
Luke controlling the narrative to follow Paul. I think it's the Holy Spirit following the one who's going to present the message of the new covenant. And so that's, this is this. This is all brewing up. You can feel it bubbling. We're in Acts 15. Peter testifies. Barnabas and Paul testify. James testifies. And at the end of it, they write a letter. And what has to be the most important moment of the church in the book of Acts to this point, they write a letter and they send it with Paul to take it out to the churches. And the letter is to the Gentiles and it reads this way. Acts 15, 22. It pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas and Silas. These are leading men among the brethren. So he's introducing the people who are bringing the letter. Because at this point, Paul's not yet famous for being Paul. Paul's only famous for being Saul. That's about to change. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles. There it is. We're writing this to Gentile believers on Christ. Ready? Here's what we want to say. Greetings. Since we've heard that some of you who went out from us have trouble some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, quote, you must be circumcised and keep the law, end quote, to whom we gave no such commandment. We didn't tell them to preach that, but they've been preaching to you that you need to get circumcised and you need to keep the law. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Interesting. This is going to come up twice in this passage. Barnabas's name is in front of Paul's. That will shift as the book of Acts unfurls. At this point, Barnabas is still the, the kind of the leader of that duo. 26. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these necessary things. That makes this next verse supremely important can you imagine whatever comes out of our mouth next this is a big deal abstain from things offered to idols from blood from things strangled and from sexual immorality if you keep yourself from these you'll do well farewell end of the letter simple we're going to send two guys with the letter we're going to send two guys as a follow-up so that you know the first two guys were real that's how big a deal this is we're going to send two sets of two one with the letter, one with the follow-up. If the guys don't follow up, then you know the first guys were liars. If they follow up, then you know it's for real. Pay attention. Here's the four things that the Holy Spirit, that's a big claim right there. The Holy Spirit's telling us to say it, and we believe we ought to say it. Here's four things we want you to do. The, the first council of Jerusalem was in regards to the Gentile question. It's this question. What's required of them now that they believe in Christ? Testimony is first given by Peter. Peter, by the way, testifies that he went to the house of Cornelius and he preached to a bunch of Gentiles and they received the Holy Spirit. And he says, I perceive that we're going to be the same, saved the same way they're saved, which is a fantastic statement. That's backwards of what you think he should have said. Because he should have said, they got, they're going to be saved the same way we're going to be saved. But he'd already had a revelation. No, I don't want them to have what I found. I want to have what they've got. He goes, we are saved in the same way they are, which is independent of whether they have religion. Barnabas and Paul testify of all the mighty works they've seen. The book of Acts has only recorded 
two chapters of their works to this point, 13 and 14. So we don't have a lot to go on yet. And I personally don't believe he's yet written the bulk of the New Testament. He's about to. And part of why he writes the New Testament is coming out of this chapter, by the way. And then thirdly, James. And James is top dog. James, the brother of Jesus, is the highest of the high in the early church because he is the brother of Jesus and often regarded as the one who has the most important voice. The first three give testimony and James gives scripture. And it seems to me that the early church was willing to hang their destiny on the testimony of their own apostles plus the scriptural evidence. And so it wasn't just testimony, it was testimony built on the Bible. And the reason I say that is because James reads the following text in Acts 15. This is the only amount of Bible they use, by the way, before they set this letter up. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return. Time out. See that little tick mark right there past the 16? That's a quote. We've, it's, it's only a single instead of a double because we're actually in the middle of a double. James is talking. So we got this little quote mark, starts 16, and that thing runs all the way to the end of 17 because he's quoting the book of Amos. He's actually quoting Old Testament. Okay. This is the only scripture they use. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. We've preached this before, and I do not have time to preach it again, so I will say this. There was no tabernacle of David. But David pitched a tent one time, and he put the Ark of the Covenant in it, and he let everyone come by and look at it that wanted to. And if you came by, he gave you a loaf of bread and a flagon of wine, and he threw a party outside the Ark of the Covenant. And everyone got to see the Ark of the Covenant for the first time in their life. And that made such an impression on the Old Testament world that they called that the Tabernacle of David. And when James heard about Gentiles getting saved, he went, wait a minute, maybe this is that. And so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. All the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. And so James gives to me the greatest contribution that he ever gives in the New Testament. I even think bigger than the book of James is this moment where he quotes Amos and he realizes Tabernacle of David is alive and well. Gentiles get to get saved. Guys, if Gentiles get to get saved, let's don't wear them out with a bunch of rules and regulations and laws. Let's do better than that. And so this is their conclusion. Their conclusion was that they should not contribute to the quote-unquote unsettling of souls. We read that straight out of the text. By demanding that Gentiles are circumcised and that Gentiles keep the law. Circumcision would have been the physical manifestation that you're part of the family of God. It would have connected you to Abraham. And the law would have connected you to Moses and Sinai. Circumcision meant you're in by race and blood. Keeping of the law meant you're in by morality. Early church said neither one. It's incredible. Because we think that being a legacy Christian and keeping high morals is the highest form of Christianity you can have. The early church knocks that down early in Acts 15. It goes, no legacy Christians and no high moral keeping to get you in. This isn't about what you can and can't do. They did feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to ease the burden. I'm using the scripture. I'm using their words. To ease the burden with four necessary things every Gentile should avoid. These are all avoidances. And notice, by avoiding them, they're not saved. They're already saved. They're not questioning whether these people are saved. They're questioning what these people need to do now that they are saved. Please get that. They're past the hurdle of can Gentiles get saved. 
They don't, they're not excited to be past it, but they're past it. They go, okay, they can. It's obvious. Now what should they do? They go, okay, if you do it, things will go well. It'll be well if you do it. We're not saying you'll stay saved. We're not saying you'll be more saved. And listen, don't you want to do well? I mean, don't you want your life to be a little better than it would be if you didn't do well? Of course, that's a pretty good sermon. Hey guys, I got a message for you today. If you don't do what I say, it's not that you're going to hell. It's not that you're not saved. But if you don't do what I say, or at least take it into account, there's probably going to be some stuff that could have went better. You go, oh, I'll pay attention to this. You know, I want in on doing well. And so four things. We're not, it's not 40 or 4,000. It's four. It's pretty easy. It's like north, south, east, and west. And what are they? Number one, don't eat things offered to idols. Seems simple enough. Doesn't make a lot of sense to the American Christian, but let me try to put you in their context. In the ancient world, there were all kinds of gods in the Roman and Greek empires. We're in the, we're in the Roman Empire at this time, by the way. There's all kinds of gods. And all kinds of sacrifices being offered to all kinds of gods on all kinds of altars in a gazillion different temples. Which means there's a lot of bulls and sheep and goat being killed daily. And you could go to the market and you could buy meat that had been offered in the morning or the evening sacrifice to various gods. And that meat would be sold to you as meat that had been offered to that god. And in those pagan religions, that meat would be considered a little bit kind of like holy meat. Like this is the kind of meat we want to eat at our table. And you might come home and brag about it and go, this goat was sacrificed to Zeus today. And you would think, ooh, this is a special goat. Now, we kind of look at that stuff and go, ha-ha, that's stupid. But just think in the cultural terms of the world of that day and recognize that we probably have our own little things kind of like that. You know, um, trinkets, superstitions. Uh, my grandpa carried this at Normandy. It means more than another coin does. No, it doesn't. It doesn't buy anything more than another coin buys. And someone else would look at that coin and go, that's dumb. Just go buy some ice cream with it. And you go, that's sacrilegious. My grandpa carried that on the shores of Normandy. That coin means more than other coins. See, kind of can grab a little bit of why it would have meant something whenever it becomes grandpa or service members or whatever. So drop that into that scenario. And so the early church goes, hey, stay away from the food offered to idols in the marketplace. Simple enough. Number two, stay away from blood. Now, not just blood in general, but blood as an instruction from Torah. Leviticus 17.10 says this. Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. It's blood that makes atonement for the soul. 12. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. 13. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who hunts and catches any animal or any bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it's the life of all flesh, blood sustains life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, shall not eat the blood of the flesh, for the life of all flesh is in the blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. It's kind of repetitive. Kind of verse after verse after verse, in the middle of Leviticus 10, God goes, don't anything, eat anything that's bleeding, which leads me to the third instruction in the book of Acts chapter 15. Don't eat things strangled. These are actually from the same text in Torah, Leviticus 10. Don't eat anything that's still got blood in it, so no blood on the plate, and don't eat anything that was strangled, because a lot of the pagan cultures didn't necessarily kill the animal by slitting its throat so they would kill it in other manners and so this was a separation 
it's going to sound odd, but this is the only way to know to say this. These three made you look Jewish. Okay? Really. Because if you weren't doing these three, you probably weren't Jewish. So it's interesting that James goes, the Holy Spirit and we decided that there's three things you ought to do. Don't eat the meat offered to idols. Don't eat blood. Don't eat things strangled. By the way, good Jews observe these three. And then in what appears to be a left turn, the fourth one comes. Stay away from sexual immorality. And the word that is used right here in the Greek is a word that is almost always in the Bible translated fornication, which when we think of fornication, we think of sex outside of marriage, a phrase that they didn't have. What they did have was the Greek word pornea, a word which literally means illicit sexual intercourse. What's illicit sexual intercourse? Great question. <laughs> That's what they would have asked. That's what people ask all the time. What's illicit? Sexual intercourse as given by God, textually, was always within marriage. And so pornea was never sex inside of marriage. Pornea would be sex outside of marriage in whatever way that looked. We've taken the word pornea, illicit sex, and it, the, the root's pretty easy to find right there. We've even shortened it all the way down to the root for porn or pornography, graphy, that which is communicated usually by word, but can be videography, biography, uh, that which is spoken or told or seen or written, biography about the individual, pornography, that which is written or spoken or seen about illicit sex. We derive those words. They're not biblical, by the way, but the roots are. So what's the root? Sexual immorality, literally sexual intercourse. Mm. But that's not the end of the game because the Bible speaks in metaphor a ton. The prophets of the Old Testament, all the way up to the book of Revelation, the word pornea is used to indicate the metaphor of idolatry, the whoredom of idolatry. For instance, in the Old Testament, God accuses Israel of pornea. How can a nation commit illicit sex? That doesn't make sense because he's using it as a metaphor. You have committed pornea with the gods of other nations. Now, did they actually sleep with other gods? No, but what they did was they sold their allegiances to other gods. They worshiped them, they gave their time to them, they gave their money to them, they gave their attention to them. So the Bible uses the word pornea. You get to the book of Revelation, where we're committing fornication with the great whore that rides the beast. And all of these empirical images keep popping up. The word pornea pops up five, six, seven times in the book of Revelation. To the church, again, a corporate. The corporate doesn't sleep with something. So we can't mean sex in the conventional definition, like you might use the word fornication. Plus, I don't think this is a left turn. We're dealing with meats offered to idols, blood and things strangled. That's the kind of stuff you do in sacrifices, public worship. Why throw pornea in? Because we're not talking just about sex. We're talking about fornicating with idolatry. Let me give you a time out right here and just point this out. The early church doesn't say, hey Gentiles, now that you're saved, stop watching this, don't go there, don't say that, don't act this way, don't do this with people. No, none of those things. This list is not a list of high morality or low morality, but this list is a list of idolatry. I find it interesting. We spend all of our time in the church preaching 
moralisms. We tell people about their sex life, their food, their body, what they drink, what they ingest, where they go, who they do it with. You just tick them off, moralisms. Don't do this, don't go there, don't be with that, don't, 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 don't. And we never, and I know I'm being, I'm painting a broad brush, doing it on purpose. We never think idolatry is a problem in the church. You know what a problem is? Sex. You know what the problem is? Drugs. You know what the problem are? Drinking. You know what the problem is? Cussing. You know what the problem? I mean, we just come up with them. Just, just, it doesn't matter. And, and I can tell you, it's cultural and it shifts generationally because there's some stuff they used to plow on and preach on and hound on when I was a kid that they're doing now. And then there's stuff that no one ever talked about that now just gets preached, 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 preached. Just kind of, it kind of goes with technology. It goes with what's going on on TV. It goes with what's happening in Hollywood. It goes with society. We don't talk about idolatry, about serving something else. The early church was the opposite. They didn't bother a lot with moralisms, but man, they couldn't get off of that horse of idolatry. They just kept preaching about Allegiance to Christ first. Everything else, secondary. In fact, everything else can't even be gotten in bed with at all. That's pornea. Now, I don't want to indicate that the early church had a lackadaisical idea about sexual immorality because I don't believe that they did. However, I think that's missing the forest for the trees if that's where we land in this list of four. In fact, the early church was staunch about marriage being the only outlet for sex and pretty clear that if you used any other outlet, whatever you got was on you. That's kind of the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Whatever happens to you happens to you because the decision was yours. And Paul even goes, look, you're not... By the way, this wouldn't go over in the church. Paul even says this to the Corinthians. By the way, you're not very good with this sex thing, so don't do it at all. He tells the Corinthian church this. He goes, don't even get married. He goes, don't even get married. He goes, some of you are burning with lust so bad, you need to get married. But if you're not burning with lust, don't get married. The end of the world's about to happen. Be better off if you didn't have someone to go home to anyway. So you can't preach the Apostle Paul word for word when it comes to what you should and shouldn't do with this. But I'll be darned if you shouldn't listen to him at least attempt to try and explain to the early church what these things mean. Because I think he walks out with this rolled up. He takes this letter and he walks out in Acts 15 and he reluctantly puts it in his bag because he believes in salvation by grace through faith. And he realizes that if you put these laws on people at all, you're going to cause problems. And he spends most of the rest of his ministry trying to explain what to do with these. He spends half of 1 Corinthians and all of the book of Galatians on this right here. Circumcision. Keeping the law, that's Galatians. That's most of Romans, by the way. Fornication, meats offered to idols. Half of 1 Corinthians. Now, the guy that writes two-thirds of the New Testament, the author of the New Covenant, spends a chunk of his ministry working on this. Because I think he walks out of that room. Here's my Paul White's opinion. This is not thus saith the Lord, all right? Paul White's opinion. I think the Apostle Paul... Rolls it up at the end of the session of the council in Jerusalem and goes, let's go. 
This ain't going to work. They don't need anything. They need the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. We don't need to put instructions and rules on them. All this is going to do is confuse people. And I think he walks out and he prays about it. And he goes, Lord, what do you want me to do about this? And I think the Holy Spirit inspires him and says, start, get your pen out and write. And let's work through some stuff. And that's what he does. And here's what it looks like. All right? Now, it's going to be quick reading. But I want to show you what it looks like. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful for me. All things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me. I will not be brought under the power of any. All things are lawful. How much is lawful? There you go. If you believe Paul, all things are lawful. Don't stop reading there, though. Don't cop out and go, ha, ha, all things are lawful. We can do whatever we want. Because that's not how this works. Okay? you got to wrestle. you got to do the work. Watch him do the work. All things are lawful. I don't want to be under anything. I'm not going to be a slave to anything. So I'm going to be careful. Food for the stomach, stomach for food. God's going to destroy both of it in the end anyway. You're going to die. He goes, no matter what you eat or you don't eat, you're going to die and the food's going to rot. He says, so let's stop obsessing over food when it isn't that big of a deal anyway. The body's not for sexual immorality. The body's for the Lord. We're going to deal with fornication, Paul says. All right, that one's hanging out there. Let's do it first. Interesting though, He'll spend three times as much time on the food argument as he does the sex argument, which I find very fascinating because we would be exactly the opposite. We would spend six times more on the sex argument while we rush to the restaurant after church. The body's not for sexual immorality. The body's for the Lord. The Lord is for your body. And God both raised up the Lord and he's going to raise us up by his power. Your body's for more than to be a sexual object. It's more than just to fulfill your sexual lust, and it's more than to be used to fulfill someone else's. All right? 15. Do you not know your body is a member of Christ? Would I take the member of Christ and join that to a harlot? Prostitution. Classic pornea. By the way, the Greek word for pornea almost always in Greek literature is translated prostitute or house of prostitution. So whenever they talked about illicit sex, it was almost always in that manner. Certainly not. Do you not know that he who joins to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Want to sleep with somebody? The moment you do, you join up with them. Be sure you want to join up with them. By the way, how's Paul really feel about it? All things are lawful. That's how this got started. Yeah, you can sleep with whoever you want to. He goes, I'm just going to give you a fair warning. When you do, you join with them. So be careful. Because if you don't know who you are, then you're joining with something else you don't know. Get ready for the hell that comes with that union. I want to tell you who you are, so you'll only join with someone that's worth joining with. He goes, so if you don't know who you are, you probably don't have any business trying to let somebody else know who you are. Which kind of filters down to this. If you can't talk about something out loud without snickering, laughing, or lying, you probably shouldn't do it. I always tell that to young people. They're like, What's, what, we, what can we get by with? Go, well, you can start with, if you can't say it, that's a really good idea that you're not ready for it. And then you can just sort of start working from there. That's a, that's a decent place to start, or you, at least you could do worse. The two, he says, shall become one flesh. 17. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So flee, pornea. Flee illicit sexual activity. Flee the sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside of his body, but those of sexual immorality, you actually sin against your own body. No, he didn't even say anything about the other person. You should actually sin against your own self. Why in the world would you want to sin against your own self? By the way, how's he really feel about it? 
all things are lawful. So choose wisely, right? All things are lawful. Choose wisely. Choose from a place of knowing who you are. That's what I see when I read this. Know who you are before you make these decisions. So if your sex life is to find yourself backwards, because that's going to bring, that's going to bring misery on you. That when your sex life becomes about finding who you are, he goes, no, stop, start over, find who you are, and then let your sex life be influenced by who you are. And God, we need to preach identity to people. <laughs> preach identity, teach identity, and then let the moralism of the Holy Spirit flow from identity. He goes, I know who I am. I know what I am. I value that more than trying to discover myself through valueless activity. So flee it. The sin you do is actually against you. You want to know who you're sinning against? You're sinning against you because you don't know who you are. And you make a fool of yourself. 1920. Do you not know that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now he's really doubled down. He goes to the end of it and he goes, okay, you want my final argument? You're really a house of the holy, man. God lives in you. This is big for a Jew to say this. Because they had the temple. He's not just a Jew anymore. He's, been, he's encountered Jesus Christ and realizes that you've become the temple. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who you have from God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. How do I really feel about it? All things are lawful. You want to take God's temple and sleep with someone you don't know? All things are lawful. But I wouldn't be brought under the power of it. That's Paul. So how's Paul feel about the sexual immorality? He's passionate about it. Are you lost if you commit fornication? Paul, Paul doesn't mention your salvation being in, in risk. He does mention your identity being at risk, knowing who you are. Now, how does it feel about the food? He got, he got started right there on food, and he got sidetracked. Did you see that happen? Stomach for the food, food for the stomach goes, God's going to destroy them both. Oh, by the way, flee sexual immorality. He kind of runs down that rabbit hole for a little while. Then he, gets, then he goes here, 1 Corinthians 8. i got to hurry, guys. I'm, I really want to read these. And if nothing else, we'll read them, you dwell on them, uh, let Paul talk to you. Now concerning things offered to idols, boom, by the way, you can't get more bold red underlined, this is the number one thing from Acts 15, don't eat meat offered to idols, here he goes. How about that meat offered to idols bit? We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, love edifies. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. One of my favorite Pauline lines in the Bible. Anytime you think you know something, the one thing you really know is you don't know anything. It's a pretty good tip for life, by the way. Verse 3. If anyone loves God, this one is no... Go back, Brian. I just got to point one thing out. Concerning the stuff offered to idols... We know, man, we got knowledge about this idols business, but you know what that does? It just makes us cocky. Knowledge puffs up. Not everybody has that. Verse three, if anyone loves God, this one's known by God. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know an idol is nothing in the world. There's no God but one. In other words, who gives a rip if it's offered to an idol? That's a fake God. He goes, I'm not freaked out about eating goat meat that was offered to Zeus. Zeus ain't real. This is Paul's argument. He goes, but that kind of knowledge just makes you cocky. And what I'm here for is not to be cocky. I'm here to love people. He goes, so in light of the fact that I know it's not a real God, should I eat that meat knowing what I know? There's no other God but one God. Verse 5, even if there were a so-called God, whether it was in heaven or is in earth, as there are many gods, many lords, yet for us, there's just one God. He's the Father, of whom are all things. We're for Him, and there's one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom 
are all things and through whom we live. It's the gospel. That's the gospel right there. There's Paul going, there's no other gods. There's one God, his name's Father, and he's got a son, his name's Jesus, and that's our Savior. You know, forget this other God business. Verse 7, however, there's not in everyone that knowledge. Not everybody knows this. Some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing as if it were offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. All they think about when they eat that goat is, oh my God, I'm eating a goat that was offered to Zeus. And then they feel bad all the time. And Paul goes, they don't know what we know. He goes, but what do we do with that guy? Just laugh at him? Make fun of him? Ah, eat the meat offered to idol. Screw it, who cares? Is that what we do? Or food doesn't condemn us to God. If we eat it, we're not better. If we don't eat it, we're not worse. Beware lest somehow your liberty becomes a stumbling block to people who are weak. Now we're getting somewhere. So if you know it tears them up, why would you eat it in front of them, he says. You know what you know, but you don't know what they know. So live your life as if what they know or doesn't know actually matters. Verse 9. If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, is the conscience of him that's weak going to be emboldened to eat things offered to idols? Because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? Would you actually take someone into condemnation over their own conscience because you're trying to prove that you're free? Man, I've seen people do this in grace. Trying to prove to people how free they are, they become offensive with their foolishness and their it becomes sin. What they're doing is not even sin, but it becomes sin because they are pushy, pushy, pushy to try to show their liberty. And Paul goes, that's silly. We don't live that way. Would you actually let someone perish because of your liberty? Verse 12, when you thus sin against your brother and you wound their conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'm never going to eat meat as long because I don't want my brother to stumble. So look, I don't need you to tell me don't eat meat offered to idols. He goes, I'm cool. I don't need an idol. Idols are fake anyway. I go eat whatever I want. But if you think it matters, I ain't going to eat it in front of you. Now this to me seems like a man following the Holy Spirit, not following the, the list. I think he walked out with that list and went, come on, man. We got to be better than this. He goes, we came out of this. We came out of this in Christ. That doesn't mean this isn't got its heart in the right place. He goes, we just need, to, we need better equipment. Let's do this again. 10, 14. Brethren, flee from idolatry. I speak as a wise man. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is that not the body? Okay. Good question. Is the, body the, is the bread the body? Is the, is the wine the blood? You're, you can answer that the way you want to. That's his question. 17. Uh, go back. Did we miss those? There we go. For we, though many, are one bread, we're one body, we all partake of one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh, are not those who eat of the sacrifice that partakes of the altar. I don't have time. I want to get to the main point here. 19. What am I saying then? Good question. What are you saying? An idol is anything? What is offered to idols is anything? Rather, the things which Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. Listen, I'm not telling you to go out and eat the crap offered to idols. He goes, that's stupid. He goes, they're not offering them to your God. He goes, why would you go participate openly in it? He, but then he goes on to say this. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we going to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? Guys, this is interesting because this is the same book. It's just Paul talking. He just keeps talking it out. And as he's talking, he comes up with new arguments. He goes, oh, what about this? What about that? What about this? 
So I th he's almost preaching himself into a corner here. Because he's like, well, I don't know, man. What about eating with idols? Because maybe if you eat with idols, maybe it's kind of like eating with a demon. You wouldn't eat with a demon. You're eating the bread and the blood. So should we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? Here's how I really feel about it, though. This is, this is not chapter 6. He circled all the way back to the same argument in chapter 10. All things are lawful. All things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. But not everything edifies. Don't let everyone seek his own. Let everyone seek the other's well-being. That's the part I want to preach to people when they start quoting to me, all things are lawful. Go ahead and read the rest of that verse, champ, because at the end of that verse, it tells you you don't get to seek your own. You have to seek your neighbor's well-being as well. So don't just tell me you can do anything you want and run over your neighbor because that doesn't count anymore. And you don't need a law to tell you it's not the right thing to steamroll your neighbor with your liberty. And that's Paul's argument. 25, eat whatever sold in the meat market. <laughs> He's, here he is. He goes, okay, I'm done. He goes, all right, you want my final answer? Eat whatever sold. Don't ask any questions for conscience sake. The earth's the Lord and the fullness of it. He comes up with a verse. It took him four chapters, but he came up with a verse because that's how we preach. He didn't have this verse at the beginning, but as he talked, he went, oh, you know, there's a verse. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Whatever's on it, eat it. If any of those who don't believe invite you to dinner and you, you want to go, then eat whatever's set in front of you. Don't ask any question for conscience sake. 28. But if anyone says to you this was offered to idols, don't eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, because the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, it's not your own conscience. It's the other guy. Why is my liberty going to be judged by another man's conscience? He wouldn't have brought up it was ate by an idol if it didn't hurt his feelings for you to eat it. So that's your cue. So if he brought it up, maybe just don't eat it. Verse 30. If I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat it or you drink it, whatever you do, just do it to the glory of God. 32. Give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also please all men, all things, not seeking my own profit, the profit of many that they may be saved. At the end of the day, I just want people to get right. I want them to know that they're not what they used to be. Don't offend Jews. Try not to offend Gentiles. He's exasperated. Can you feel it? He gets to the end. He goes, you know what? Just eat whatever. Here's the way I look at this last chapter. He goes, just, just eat whatever you want. He goes, I don't know. I don't care. Just don't run over people's conscience, man. If you know they're offended, just don't do it. Just try to follow the dictates of the Spirit. So here's where we land. The church of Acts 15 was still in shock that Gentiles could even be saved. They released Gentiles from the circumcision and the Mosaic law. Paul spends all of Galatians defending these two liberties. You don't got to be circumcised. You don't live the law. And shockingly, he even puts Jews in it. And that gets him killed, by the way. Because he comes along to the Jewish people and goes, oh, by the way, you don't have to keep the law either. He goes, you're in Christ. This isn't just a Gentile thing. He goes, you're out from under the law. He goes, he even doubles down and goes, I'll even say this. If you get circumcised, you got to keep the whole law. Don't, don't tell me I need to be. He said, you're in trouble for getting circumcised. I think he actually pushes the envelope pretty far on that one, but it's between him and the Lord. Then they incorporate four instructions that seem to be done to keep from offending non-believing Jews. Please read that again. They incorporate four instructions that seem to be done to keep from offending non-believing Jews and to keep the Gentile Christians from idolatry. Idolatry, not moralism, is the primary focus of the early church all the way through the book of Revelation. So I ask you, what is the necessary thing in the church? Not a list of instructions and do's and don'ts. Some good teaching would help. 
on all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. But I don't think the Holy Spirit was wrong in Acts 15. I think he just gave them something in ways they could understand. I think he's still saying the same thing to his church. The thing you need to watch out for is don't split your allegiance. You have one God. Serve him. That's it. There's your rules. Do what he does. What's he do? He loves. So go love. Don't struggle with that. Go love. Don't split your allegiance. Don't decide who gets worthy. That's the way the world would act. Don't serve that God. And I think whenever you slice it, what you end up with is the call away from idolatry. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You've been good. I've been slow. You've been fast. Help us, Father, to take what you've done and what you're doing and let you mold and shape who we are. The necessary things, I don't think have ever changed to you. I think that we've made some things necessary that maybe aren't, but what you've always thought was necessary is allegiance to covenant. Be allegiant to the covenant you're in. And we're in covenant with you. We can't decide what parts of it we wish to keep. And the covenant is believe on you exclusively, our one Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.